Hi listeners, Al Martin here from Making Data Simple. I have to apologize in advance for the audio quality of the upcoming podcast. Uh, It's bearable, but not world-class. So please bear through it if you would. I think you're going to get a ton of value, and I promise we'll correct the audio in the future. Thanks so much, and thanks for listening. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even Welcome back to the Making Data Simple series. Uh, Al Martin's here. Uh, thank you for listening. The leadership or the listenership, I should say, continues to grow, and I greatly appreciate that. Hopefully, we're giving you all a ton of value. Uh, and, and by the way, please please let us know how we're doing. Rate us. Shoot me or the producers a, a suggestion. Uh, we take those to heart. And and by the way, if you are an industry leader. And have a great topic that you'd like to discuss, uh, we, we welcome that just as well. So welcome, Gabriella. Welcome, BJ. We have two guests for this episode, Gabriella de Kiraz. hope I got that right, Gabriella. And she is the Senior Engineering and Data Science Manager at IBM. And then we got BJ Bamir Reddy-Pali, who is also at IBM. He's the Head of Development at CoDay. And that stands for the Center of Open Source Data and AI Technologies. I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves a bit before we jump into some of the questions I have. And I have a lot, I'll warn you. So, Vijay, why don't I let you go first? Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you for having us here. Um, yes, you know, my name is Vijay Bomberadipali. I lead a, um, a team here in IBM called the CODAY team, or the Center for Open Source Data and AI Technologies. Uh, we're a group of uh, developers, mostly based out of the San Francisco Bay Area, but also a few of them scattered worldwide, um, focused on open source technologies uh, relevant to our uh, data and AI um, area for IBM, right? So we're, we're out there in the communities contributing code. We're out there at conferences and meetups uh, presenting our work. So, um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, you know, we're mostly, uh, everything that we do is out in open source. So we'd, we'd love to tell you more about it. Gabriella, why don't you give it a go? Yeah, thank you for having us today. Uh, so my name is Gabriella de Queiroz. I'm a senior engineering and data science manager here at Code. So I run the machine learning team and we have like several projects going on, but one of them that we, it's, it's our focus right now is the model asset exchange. And the Model Asset Exchange is a place for developers and data scientists to find and use free and open source deep learning models. Um, so it's all available for free. Uh, you can use, you can deploy, you can consume uh, deep learning models in a variety of, of cases like audio, text, and so on. And I, I also do, I, I run the R Ladies, I'm the founder of R Ladies, and R is a programming language for data scientists. And the mission of the organization, R Ladies, is to bring more diversity into the R community. And we have chapters all over the world, and I can talk about that a little bit later, but that's, that's who I am in a nutshell. Very good. Uh, that's good. We will talk about that. And VJ, coming back to you real quick, just for clarity, I know it's the Center of Open Source Data and AI Technologies, 
But when I first started, before the call began, I was talking about codate. I was asking you what it did. But it's actually code, and it's a French word. It's like a, a dual meaning or something. That's right. Uh, so if you if you talk to any person of French or someone who knows French, they might uh, get into a little bit of an argument with you. But uh, you know the best we can tell, and we've validated this with some of our French team members, is that it's like an imperfect past tense of uh, someone who is coded. And we like that connotation because we essentially like like our code to do the talking. So so that's why. When we were, uh, you know, doing a play on the acronym, we liked this one a lot. You know, so it's code and it's a French word for like coder or has coded. Well, you know, we have a lot of French listeners, so I'm sure, and I hope I do hear from them in terms of how we're using it incorrectly or otherwise. So, you know, learn something every day. I, I'm sure, you know, the French don't sit idle. They'll make sure that they 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 get their word in. Hey, uh, and also this used used. This used to be the Spark Technology Center, did it not? And, and if, if so, which I believe so, why the change and why the expansion? You're absolutely right. So, um, you know, when I first took on this role in the uh, end of 2015, uh, we had recently, IBM had launched um, the Spark Technology Center, right? And IBM's done this uh, several times, right? When, when, we, when we see a technology uh, very pervasive um, to both our product lines as well as to our enterprise clients, we form a center of excellence, right? We did that with the Linux Technology Center, with the Java Technology Center, and when Spark became quite pervasive in the in the data stack or or in the data and AI stack, uh, we launched the Spark Technology Center. Um, you know, when we when we started creating, uh, you know, we did the same. Essentially, we were open, you know, contributing to this Apache Spark ecosystem. We latched onto it fairly early, and we made this uh, at that time like relatively nascent technology, like with the help of huge help from the rest of the community. Um, IBM is by no means a, um, you know, one, uh, the only main contributor. Um, you know, we made it very very relevant to our enterprise clients, and made it enterprise ready essentially with the help of the community. But during the course of that time, we also noticed that, you know, while Spark is uh, fantastic for certain use cases, right, uh, uh, especially we kind of, uh, you know, made the SQL side of it really strong, right, it also has really good implementations of certain machine learning algorithms, we didn't see it as a one-size-fits-all, like we didn't want to recommend Spark for everything. So when we were solving certain use cases uh, within the team, uh, I never restricted the team to say just focus on Spark itself. So over time, uh, what I noticed and, and what the team noticed is that organically people were using um, various different techniques for uh, different problems, right? Uh, so we were tackling this interesting problem that was put out by, I forget the name of the university in Holland, uh, where they issued like a breast cancer mitosis detection challenge. Right, and as part of that, uh, you know, the team members uh, latched onto deep learning, and at that time, you know, they tried things out with TensorFlow, with PyTorch, with Cafe, uh, and then in other use cases, people were using the Python ecosystem. Um, some of the team members started improving uh, the Jupyter ecosystem. So. All in all, we, we realized that within a, a couple of years, while Spark is wonderful, uh, it is not the be-all and end-all of the, the kind of things that we needed to work on. And so organically, our, our name became a bit of a misnomer. We were no longer just the Spark Technology Center. And so while we continue our important mission with Spark, uh, we also expanded um, our mission to include data and AI elements or, or projects, um, open source projects in the data and AI space. 
and hence the rename, right? So we uh, we played around with the acronyms and ended up with CODE, the Center for Open Source Data and AI Technologies. So you're Mr. Open Source now. You've went from Mr. Spark to Mr. Open Source. I'm sorry. Well, well, I I shouldn't quite take that credit, right? Because IBM <laughs> and open source is a much much bigger story than that, right? So we we are the data and AI open source story, and that too, we're just the dedicated team for data and AI open source. Um, across IBM, a lot more folks contribute to open source, even within the data and AI space, right? But yes, we certainly. Uh, see a lot of the, the the source code. We see a lot of the projects. Uh, we get to preview them internally before we we put that out in the open. So absolutely, we, I I you, I like that uh, role title actually. Maybe I should change that on LinkedIn. You know. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I got another question for you, and then I'm a, then I got some questions for you, Gabriella. Um, and look, I, I like to jump right in. I like to keep it fresh. And the good news about this. Uh, some of the questions I ask, I have my own point of view, but see, I, I like doing the podcast because I get to ask it at, in, in very open terms to see what your point of view is. And here's the first one. So open source and IBM. Now, you know, just throwing it out there, IBM has a lot of investment in software. We've got a lot of investment in hardware. And in some sense, I'm sure for people listening right now, they, they'd say that open source would appear to be the antithesis of our business model because we, we do make you know, revenue in, in, in software, a lot of revenue in software. So my question to you is, what is the value proposition for open source? What is the business model? Or is it just lip service uh, to attract developers? I'll leave it at that. So uh, I... I I don't want to sound like I speak for all of IBM, but nevertheless, just like what you said, just like you asked the question, I'll give you my opinion and observation, having been in this space in open source for a bit. Um, I mean, it's a look. IBM has been a long-standing, fantastic citizen in the world of open source, right? Uh, we, it's, it's. Uh, let me tackle that piece first, right? It is by by no means a lip service from IBM. Uh, we have years, actually decades of uh, you know engagement in open source. And, and uh, my VP Todd Moore, he calls it the chop wood carry water model, right? We just don't do the fancy bits. We do the hard work, the, the, the grinding work, the documentation, the security features um, across a number of different projects that are um, you know, relevant to our product teams. And, and that brings me to my second point in terms of the business model, right? We, uh, while IBM gives all this amount of code uh, and expertise and, and time uh, to the, the open source projects, it is by no means purely a benevolent uh, exercise. You know, IBM leverages a lot of these open source projects, right? Um, you know, uh, our foundational pieces are all based on open source. Right. If you look at Watson, Watson, um, the the various Watson product lines leverage open source extensively. Right. So this is, uh, and and this is not just true for IBM. This is true for all the big players in the space. Right. Uh, Microsoft does that. Google does that. Amazon does that. And um, let me give you a specific example of like how they. And again, this is uh, <laughs> my example. Right. I don't mean to kind of extend that in general. But uh, think about, let's take a look at Apache Spark, a project that I'm intimately familiar with. There's over a thousand contributors contributing code into Apache Spark. Um, it doesn't matter whether it's IBM or Google or Microsoft, uh, no company can dedicate 
a thousand developers to just one project, right? So that's the power of the community, right? And and this is by no means folks who are, uh, you know, without a job just contributing, right? These are folks working in enterprise clients or enterprise companies or large companies that know what are the enterprise requirements and are infusing that that you know, all those wonderful features and fixes and, and everything that is needed in order for that piece of software to succeed within their stack, right? So from a business model perspective, even software vendors like IBM, you know, we don't want to compete in, the, in, in, in things that we believe should be available freely uh, to all, right? I mean, Linux was a great example of that. Uh, Java is a great example of that. And so are so many other projects where, um, you know, it's a well-known approach now that people build community, uh, get the benefit of community, of the hardening that happens as part of, um, you know, uh, curating something out in open source. And then, um, you, know, uh, you know, people who are dedicating that time get to be more influential in these projects, especially if they're open governance, right, uh, being part of foundations like Apache or Linux Foundation. Uh, people get to be more eminent, more influential, and IBM has earned that uh, in many, many different projects. And of course, that from a business model uh, is good for us because our clients demand that. And, and we're able to demonstrate that saying, hey, look, this is all the work that we've done. These are the kind of features that we're put in open source. So it does not negate our value. It actually increases our value uh, to our clients. Nicely done, nicely done. See, I put you on the back seat right off the front and you did, you did, you did well, I got a few follow-ups, but I'm going to hold those for for just a moment. I, I do have one question. I would just I'll throw a softball at you. At one point in time, IBM was the largest contributor, um, open source contributor to Spark. Does that still hold? Do you know? I don't have the latest and greatest metrics. I actually I'll point uh, your listeners to a particular blog as to how much we have contributed in Spark 2.4, which is one of the latest releases. Um, but yes, for a period of time there in Spark ML, as an example, we were the number one contributor for like many releases. Uh, we have done uh, a lot of contributions. Uh, I think last I checked, it is over 60,000 lines of code into Apache Spark. Uh, more than just the lines of code, we brought a ton of expertise from our database groups. So Spark SQL, we played a huge part in that. Spark ML, as I mentioned, we were number one contributor for a number of releases over there. Um, and by no means, uh, IBM, uh, you know, IBM is one of the big uh, contributors to Spark. There's been fantastic contributions from other uh, folks like Huawei, like, of course, like Databricks, who still remains, uh, you know, a key contributor. So, um, you know, but yes. Uh, I, I definitely, uh, not my back, but my team's back, I'd like to uh, thump our chest and collect impacts on that front. <laughs> all right, very good. Hey, I, I got more questions, but I'm going to come back to you. So first of all, uh, Gabriella, is there any, is there a different take or a complimentary you take on the question I just asked before I ask you a couple more? Uh, so it's interesting. So I'm, I'm pretty new at IBM. Uh, it's been less than a year. And when I, before joining IBM, and I think that's the, that, that, that's the idea that a lot of people have uh, around IBM is that I, I had no idea that we contribute to so many open source projects. And we have uh, several people contributing to different projects. So I had no idea about that until I joined IBM. So, uh, and that's a misconception. And one of like my advocacy, like my advocacy side on that is like, I wanna tell everybody 
that we are doing open source. So uh, one of my goals is to publicize a little bit more around that. So I think a lot of teams are doing a good, a good job on pub publicizing our contribution to open source and to be uh, well known in the, in the community that we are uh, one of the top uh, contributors. Um, so I, and I would, I would also like add everything that BJ said, you know, on the Spark side and now uh, on TensorFlow, we are, we are getting more and more contributors on, on TensorFlow from IBM. Yeah, so fair enough, fair enough. And I, I got some more questions on the open source piece, but I, I, I want to hit you with some questions to do as we, I want to hit you with some questions as well, so, and we'll bring it together. You, um, kind of describe yourself as data and AI developer advocate. Mm -hmm. What does it mean in this day and age to be a developer advocate? So every company has a different meaning uh, for what the developer advocate does. Uh, but mostly like what we do or what I do is uh, I make sure that we are publicizing what we do internally to the external world, uh, work on uh, making the projects accessible to everybody, like either like writing documentation or thinking about usability and, and it like making it available to everybody to use in an easy way. So I'm always thinking about that. The other way, the other thing is like we go to conferences and we talk about projects that we are developing um, so there are pieces that we we are all everybody's engaged in some communities in 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 a way. So doing conferences, uh, community work, contributing to open source projects, and yeah, that that's pretty much. How all right, I got it. I got it. The other thing that you say, and I wanted to get this, is you say, quote unquote, that you are in the business of democratizing AI. Now, those are big words, at least the democratizing is, and it's overused, I think, in the industry. What does that mean when you say, hey, we're going to democratize AI? Yeah, I think this term is it's, it's overused. And, and the way that I would describe is, you know, we are creating things to make it easier for people to use. Uh, so one example, the model asset exchange, we do a lot of the hard work upfront for you so we don't have to go through this. Uh, uh, so it, it, that's what we are doing. So we are making these tools available to everybody. So you don't need to be like a machine learning engineer to be able to use deep learning models. Uh, or you don't have to have a, a, a large experience on, on data science to use what we are doing. Uh, and on top of that is how do you create materials that people can use to understand how to use uh, these this tools? Yeah, let, let me add a little bit to that, uh, Al, if you don't mind. The, so think about it, right? I mean, these are new techniques, not re they're relatively recent technique in the grand scheme of things, right? Deep learning. And it requires a fair amount of expertise for people to actually apply that. And everyone's pushing the envelope and trying to, to kind of improve the ease of use. But think about all the folks who are in various industries, like in the, in the sciences or in, 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 uh, you know, in healthcare, in finance, 
they bring a lot of domain expertise, right? But they don't have the expertise to actually, uh, they don't have deep learning and, and, and machine learning expertise, right? So anything that we do to move the needle in terms of uh, bringing those techniques closer to these domain experts uh, helps with that democratization. So while it's an overused word, there is a big gap here in terms of how many people can apply this and bring their business or, or domain knowledge and but still be able to leverage these techniques. And so that's where what Gabriella mentioned with the model asset exchange is one of our attempts, right, at trying to address that. Um, not only do we we package these models and make sure that the lineage of these models is clear so that folks in the enterprise can use it. We're also showing examples of how to consume these models. So imagine if you're a developer, like a node developer or a, uh, you know, somewhat a web developer, how do you infuse that logic from deep learning models, right? Be able to kind of invoke these models and, and the output of that, how do you kind of merge that with your business logic, right? So we're focused on not just the data science of it, but also on what I would loosely call AI consumption. So let's talk a little bit about AI consumption. Um, both BJ and Gabriella, e either one can answer this question. The, you know, you both talk to, hey, you've got domain experts and we're trying to, in the name of democratizing AI, make AI accessible to the business user, that domain expert. But how, you know, a lot of people listening, and I can tell you, you know, we're still in our infancy within AI in, the, in that, you know, a lot of folks listening out there still look at it as magic, still look at it as, well, I don't know how the decisions are being made. I am not a data science. I don't know how to get in, in, involved. I am a, maybe I'm a telecom expert. Maybe I'm a retail expert. By, by God, I, I'm not a data science expert. And I gotta, I gotta create this entire uh, data science team with a chief data officer, et cetera. How, give me more details on the how in the simplicity piece on how we're making it or democratizing AI maybe in the name of open source and providing it to those da da well, domain experts so that they can be effective in a in a timely manner. Either of you can take that one. <laughs> so um, let's take an example that I mentioned earlier with regards to, you know, one of the challenges that we, um, you know, we attempted to solve, which was around the breast cancer mitosis detection, right? Uh, the eventual end goal of something like that would be that we would like to, using these AI techniques, uh, we would like to kind of assist a medical professional, you know, to point out certain areas that he or she may want to take a deeper look or ideally give them a rating that they can reevaluate, right? That, that should be the level of simplification, which is you press a button and out comes the, a assisted or augmented uh, intelligence that basically tells you these are the areas to focus on, or these are the problem areas that we, uh, that you know the the algorithms believe uh, should be relooked at, right? Uh, we're not there yet, right? In terms of uh, in terms of both the technology as well as everything that surrounds it, in terms of the life cycle and so on, right? So for us, what we're trying to do is take that a piece at a time, right? For the first part, how do we make sure that the model is easily consumed? Right. So with that end state in mind, let's like break this problem down. Right. I mean, how do we make sure the model is easily consumed? How do we make sure that the developer who is trying to kind of then come back and give an answer saying these are the areas you may want to look at? How does he or she 
invoke that model and present that information back to the user? How do we make sure that um, variations in the images do not result in wrong answers? Right? So there are a number of different pieces over here that can be worked on independently. And when you put this all together, that's when you will really find the simplification or what I would call the automated AI that is needed in order for this to become really useful to domain experts. Right? And so everything that we are doing is a step in that direction. By no means are we anywhere close to being done. Right, uh, but hopefully that kind of provides context as to like each of these things that Gabriella mentioned earlier is an attempt in that direction. Gabriella, did he nail it? <laughs> yes, a hundred percent. Nailed it. All right, look, I mean, so a couple of things I would say on that, just to, just to add for my own, because I, I can't keep my mouth shut. But um, look, I think, you know, we've got prepackaged AI models that you can use, uh, like, um, well, I mean, yeah, there's, 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 I'm going blank, Watson. Uh, visual recognition is an example. Visual recognition is an example. And then we've also got, uh, you know, you can write your own models, which is build, deploy, and manage. So build is Watson Studio, deploy Watson ML, manage Watson uh, open source. And the funny thing is, is I think that's where, uh, you know, a lot of people in the industry, particularly the business leaders or the domain experts get hung up. They're worried about bias, they're worried about model accuracy, and they don't know where to go with it. That's why we created Watson OpenScale, so that we can open that up with explainability, let that business user know, hey, look, you know, here's how the decision was, was made, and so that you can make follow-on decisions um, accordingly. You know, an interesting story with that, if, if I could share, um, I often talk about the default effect, where our minds are, are pre-wired to, if we've seen a previous decision before, we don't have unlimited compute and storage like computers do, so we'll make the same decision without all the facts if we think, hey, this looks like a decision I've already made. And it's called the default effect, and it's it, it, you know so it, it, it's a it's a form of bias, if you will, no different than anything else. And I, w I, I thought about this the other day. I was given a a um, it was a lab spotlight, and I was given a, a speech. And we had had a meeting in the morning, and then in the afternoon, we had another meeting, and all the people came in and they sat in the exact same seats. I mean, the exact same seats. We had like 200 people. And I could almost verbatim say they sat in the, I mean, the exact same seats. It's because they'd already made that decision. Some of the seats weren't good. They couldn't see the screen, but they said, well, I've already made that decision. I'm going to sit there again. So I thought that was a perfect example of the default effect. Well, well we got tools that make that simple, like Watson OpenScale, so that we can see where that bias is happening and root out that bias. All right. Anyway, that, that's my story for the day. I don't know if it resonates here, but... Uh, that's a, so, sorry to kind of, but that's a critical aspect here, which is, you know, um, is there any inherent bias in the data that was used for the models that were trained? And if so, uh, you know, just because you were using that model before, uh, are there tools in there that would point that out to the end user, right? So, uh, you know, using data essentially to kind of, um, you know, find that bias and kind of point that out and so and ideally even remediate that bias is critical. So all of the tools that you mentioned are critical in that, you know, enterprise AI 
life cycle. And what we do at Coday is make sure that, you know, from an open source perspective, a subset of that is something that we are focused on so that the community at large also benefits from that. Anything to add, Gabriella, uh, before we move on? Yeah, uh, so I think it would be interesting to mention that Coday, uh, I only mentioned about the model and set exchange because that's the focus of my team, but the Coday organization, uh, there are other projects uh, that we have. So uh, we have the Jupyter Gateway, we have uh, Fabric for deep learning, uh, we have Pixie Dust, we have AI Furness. Uh, am I missing something, Vijay? But yeah, these are some of the, no, absolutely. These are some of the you know, great projects that we jointly work with our colleagues across IBM, right? So a lot of these projects actually originated from research, right? So AI Fairness 360, Adversarial Robustness Toolkit, uh, the Fabric for Deep Learning, um, uh, Jupyter Enterprise Gateway that you mentioned, Gabriella. So all of these are, are uh, you know, incredible projects that, uh, you know, the team, the larger team is working on. And, and Gabriella is our machine learning leader who is kind of um, leveraging, I guess, like some of this infrastructure underneath, including yeah. things like Fabric for Deep yeah. Learning. Well done. Hey, um, I want to pivot now. I want to ask a few what I call lightning round questions, but before I do, I'll just say that, look, I like it when I get to play stupid. It, it's, it's seemingly very easy for me. I, <laughs> I should maybe look into that, but quite simply, open source has increased the, past, uh, the pace of innovation. I think it's provided a, an inflection point in the industry where we find ourselves, where we've got advancing algorithms and, and uh, the plummeting price of compute and storage. You put that together with the the open source, and we see the the the, the pace of change and innovation we, we have today. Um, so look, I think most clients, or no, every client should have an open source strategy. And to your point, VJ, from a go-to-market, you know, we're uh, here at IBM. We're abiding or embodying that principle, and that we leverage open source within our products, and also outside of our products like a microservices architecture that I've referred to, I think in the past on this podcast, like it's called uh, IBM Cloud Private for Data. It's a microservice uh, uh, platform. We support, even though we have our own database, our enterprise database, we support Postgres and Mongo. And uh, we do that for a number of different reasons. We want to attract developers. Um, we also, that gives us a, a an essentially a pipeline because we think our products are pretty well suited for enterprise. So if somebody comes in through Mongo, they'll look at DB2 to extend their, uh, uh, their, their data sources in, in the future, if you will. So look, I, I, you, I'm sold. So thanks for coming on here. But I do want to finish with a, what I call a lightning round. And this is where it's one of our popular areas where I ask you a few questions, a little bit personal, not too personal, so don't worry, but to get to know you and get to know your suggestions for those that are listening in terms of career path and beyond. You willing? Can I, can I count on you for a couple of answers here? Sure. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm not setting you up, I promise you. All right. Um, real, real quick, and it's, it's a lightning round. I'm, you, know, you can go as deep as you want, but it's really intended for, for quick answers. So, VJ and Gabriella, I'll start with you, VJ. What are your passions outside of the workplace? What do you do for fun? Well, I ride motorcycles and I ski, but these days I have a two-month-old, so that's that's where all my time goes. 
Uh, I'm surprised that the motorcycle hadn't been pulled away from you then, <laughs> especially for liability. That's my wife says, no, you're not doing that anymore. Uh, how about you, Gabriella? Um, it's Our Ladies and Community Involvement. Community Involvement. Thank you very much. So I'll stick with you. What is your advice, and for you, uh, since you're focused on diversities and young ladies, what is your advice for young ladies that are considering a career, by example, in open source or data and AI, data and AI for that matter? Uh, I would say entering in open source can, can sound a little scary. So if you can find someone that can either mentor you and show you how you can approach uh, contributing to open source, that's, that's a way to go. But if you don't have anyone, try to find a uh, like on this a small project instead of like going big at first try like smaller projects where they have like let's say good first issue and where you feel like the community is supportive um, I would totally <laughs> I would totally say go to the R community and find some R packages to work on and then start contributing on there because R is, is well known for being a very inclusive and welcoming community, so I, I would say go there. And in terms of like uh, AI, and be curious and and learn as much as you can. Very good, nicely answered. VJ, same question for you. What's your advice for any students or even professionals out there that are considering data and AI technology or open source? Yeah, I mean we we live at a time when there's so much. Fantastic material. So you know, so many sources of so much fantastic material out there. Uh, as as Gabriella said, start small. I think you know, um, you know, uh, get going uh, on on things. What I would call available as a service. Go to log on to one of the cloud providers, IBM hopefully, right? And 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 try out their tutorials. Try out their different uh, you know available uh, code patterns. As I mentioned on developer.ibm.com and start small and and one by one next thing you know uh, and by the way you don't have, you don't have to be like a phd data scientist to kind of uh, you know to get in at that level um, what uh, what is often a misconception is people think that you need to be a mathematical well, like a genius to to get in the key thing is uh, the ai life cycle involves not just data scientists but developers and and different pieces um, you know in that continuum so find out your find out where you can play a part and, and get going there. Yeah, to your point, I think there's ripe opportunity right now and anyone listening can certainly differentiate themselves in a fairly short order just by taking the first step. So I agree with you. Um, what's, your, what's your number one role model today that's not related to you? Who is your number one role model? Are you good? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I think straight, I never thought I would say this uh, uh, 20 years ago, but, uh, but Bill Gates has become, uh, you know, increasingly I see the amount of work he does and how he puts his resources to use, and, and who is, of course, inspired by Warren Buffett, right? So they're putting their enormous uh, resources and applying the same discipline that they run Microsoft and, and Berkshire Hathaway. They're putting that discipline to kind of do good for the world. So I'm really, really impressed with that. Same question to you, Gabriella. You know, that's funny. I cannot name one role model, but I think it's a collection of uh, different traits from different people. Uh, so I will not name uh, 
people here, but more it's a collection of traits from different people. All right. So what are those traits? Can you give me a few traits? Yeah. So uh, right now, like things that it matters a lot to me, it's like leadership, uh, like how to be a good manager, how to think strategically, um, how do you be, do business in general. Uh, so those are the traits that in, in this in this time in my life I'm looking forward. All right, cool. You pride yourself on mentorship. You mentioned that earlier, and I know in your profile that you tout that as well. So here's the question. I presume you've had some good mentors, or you've well, I, I'm, I'm certain you provide great mentorship, but the question is, is what is the best leadership advice that you've ever received? Oh, uh, think, always think, if everything goes wrong, what can it be? <laughs> so so leverage, leverage failures for good in terms of uh, dissecting the, uh, turning the dilemma into opportunity, I should say. Yes. Yes, and and you know one thing that I want to say here is uh, since I joined IBM, it's incredible how many mentors I've had. Uh, before IBM, it was so hard to have someone to help and mentor me. I was doing mostly like mentoring other people, and inside IBM, I found easy to access mentors. So I have few mentors throughout the organization that I go to if I, you know, I have some questions or I want to bounce some ideas off. But so what should a business, if they're thinking, and they're not IBM, what they should be doing to emulate that uh, environment? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, that I don't know the answer. Uh, I don't think there is an easy way uh, to access those people. Like, I think because inside IBM, you know, they are always open to help. And you have, you have one connection, at least. You, you are an IBMer, so you have this connection where on the outside, if you don't have any connection at all, it's hard. How do you approach someone? Right. I think um, one is mentorship needs to be part of an organization's culture. And I think um, a lot of times people get hung up on, you know, they, they have a mentor and a protege and it doesn't work or something, and then that kind of uh, sours their view of mentors or whatever. And I'll tell you what, a lot of mentors don't work for a lot of different reasons. But, but the idea is, all right, that one didn't work, toss it off and try another one. Toss it off, try another one. And what I find that is I always get one nugget of, of um, brilliance from each one, and then sometimes you'll find a brilliant mentor and you stick with one for a while, but you just keep trying until it, until it matches. And I think it's got to be in your culture. So Vijay, um, what is the best leadership advice that you've ever received? I, I was, you know, as, as Gabriel was answering, you know, I was thinking about it. I think for me, the main thing is exactly what you said, which is mentorship as a culture or mentoring or seeking out mentors is probably the, um, the advice that I first received like um, which which I, I you know until then there was a period of time where uh, I think I was probably a <laughs> uh, totally uh, you know someone who thought I knew it all right and 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 you know over time we learned the hard way that look you could always use advice especially when you're kind of stuck in the problem getting that advice from someone who's really really experienced 
uh, and can look at that objectively, right? So someone outside of your uh, immediate sphere, right? And that's what uh, that's where what Gabriella mentioned uh, comes into play, at least for us within IBM, where you have mentors coming across from different business units, different areas, but you're bringing years of experience. Uh, what that does is uh, allows them to look at this objectively, allows them to apply their experience, and over time, I, I can speak for myself, again and again, I've benefited from the advice, the timely advice, the in-context advice that they they provide, right? So, so I think, if anything, I would say the advice that I got to get mentors is probably most, most uh, you know, relevant for me. All right, so let me ask another one. How, uh, what's the most important habit for individuals to be successful in open source? I would say be humble and be, uh, you know, come in with the intent to help. Um, you know, you're not always going to be able to, or, or it's, it's not rewarding just to be that ACE programmer or ACE coder. Um, coming in with the intent to help is, is already a fantastic start. Gabriella, you get the same question. Uh, be ready to receive feedback, either good feedback or, or criticism. Uh, that reminds me of uh, one of my favorite books, which is uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, being able to receive feedback and take it positively so you can constructively improve yourself moving forward. All right, last question. Um, I've mentioned that book before. Last question. How do you learn? Uh, Gabriella, I mean, where do you go to get information? What's your go-to that others could learn from? Um, I'm a visual person, so if there is any video around about a, a topic that I'm interested, I would go and, and, and look it up. It can be like, a, like for example, a Coursera class, or it can be a video on, on YouTube, uh, but something that is visual. I don't have one source, but I have several sources that provide uh, videos is my go-to place. <laughs> so like Coursera, Coursera and YouTube are, are two of your go-tos? Yes. All right, how about you, VJ? Yeah, I mean, for me also, YouTube, strangely, um, you know, I never thought that would be the case, but uh, because of all these uh, sessions that are out there, meetups that are being recorded, my Apple TV has already <laughs> playlist of things that I need to get to, or topics that I need to get familiar with. So I use that as a starting point. And then, yeah, I think then I, at some point, either look at, um, so I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters. Uh, you know, on the data science side, I've, you know, I have subscribed to the, uh, the O'Reilly newsletter, uh, the ODSC newsletter, the Open Data Science uh, newsletter. Uh, as well as, uh, you know, when I really want to get hands-on is when I go to Coursera or Udacity or one of the, you know, hands-on courses. And of course, you know, I'm always learning from moveup.ibm.com because we do have videos over there. We do have, like, code patterns and things like that as well. Fantastic. Uh, VJ, Gabriella, uh, I know that you're both on LinkedIn and Twitter. We will put your contact information in the show notes. But I thank you for taking the time today. Uh, I took a ton of information from open source, and uh, hopefully the community, the listeners, will also reach back out to you with any questions they do have. And again, if you're listening and if you have ideas or you'd like to expand upon this in a future podcast, please suggest something. Uh, we certainly take all, uh, all nominations, all considerations. But you guys have been brilliant. Uh, Vijay, uh, Gabriella, thank you so much for being on the, the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
All right, folks, until next time, uh, get back to making data simple, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out. Oh.